Okay, you might want to take out your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Take out your Bibles uh, on your phone or in paper. We're looking at the story of the rich young ruler. Um, last week, when Bruce was doing the announcements, he caught me out. You saw what he did? He noticed that uh, when I plan a sermon, sometimes I come up with a title that then I don't stick to when I go through with it. So I have kept with the title, although to be honest, I don't want to. <laughs> I want a different title, but I can't have um, Bruce highlighting my um, inconsistency on this. We're um, beginning at verse 13, I think. Oh, no wonder. I'm looking at Matthew's gospel, so no wonder. You know, I regularly have dreams about not being able to find books in the Bible when I'm asked to preach. Um, sometimes in that dream, I get a book, and someone hands me a book, and there's different books in the Bible, and I'm not able to recognize them. Um, so uh, we are in Mark's gospel, not Matthew's gospel, chapter 10. And we're at the famous story of the rich young ruler. And you know, there's one verse in this passage that I love more than any other. Um, I've always loved this. And I think it's only in Mark that it said, where it says he looked at him and loved him. I just love that. You know, here is the heart of Jesus looking at someone who is not going to value Jesus more than his stuff. Here is Jesus looking at someone who's going to walk away empty. Here's someone who's going to reject Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. And it breaks Jesus' heart to hand someone over to their doom. It's a very sad story, really, when you think about it. I'm sure that Jesus went away sobered and upset by this. During the week, I was visiting someone who is not in this church, but who, who lost someone recently. She said to me, do you believe in hell? I said, I do. I, I hate it, but I do. And, and there's a logic to hell. It was that Jesus offers us his forgiveness. He offers us his life. But if we walk away choosing that we would rather not have him, we are left to our choice. C.S. Lewis wrote, I think it was in Mere Christianity, that at the end of the day, there's only two types of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. Or those to whom God says, your will be done. And it's a sobering reality. And in this, we can see Jesus' heart for someone who's going to walk away empty-handed. I think the centerpiece of this story is idolatry. But I'm still going to use his title. Um, or my title that he pointed out. But I think the centerpiece of this story is idolatry. And what I mean by idolatry is not little statues, but I mean those things that we put our hope in. Those things that we look to for security and significance. Those things that in some ways function as God in our lives. And you'll know what your idols are because when someone interrupts them, you get angry because you feel like you're dying. And so if you're idle, and this is a very common one, control, when chaos comes into your life, you get angry because you're out of control, and control is where you find your security. If your idol is comfort, 
and possessions and all that comfort can do for you. And someone makes you uncomfortable, or in this situation, Jesus asks you to give, you get defensive. Because that is where your hope is. That is what you put your security in. Or if it's approval, whether the approval of a parent or a teacher or friends, you become crushed if someone criticizes you. And here's a man who has idols, I, I think in, in some ways two major idols. One is his goodness. He thinks that he's right with God on the basis of his goodness. He's a very proud man, as we will see. But the other is his possessions. And Jesus gets right to his heart. Because Jesus really isn't interested in outward conformity. He's not interested in a sort of faith that doesn't affect the heart. That's where it matters to God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He doesn't want us just to go through routines. He wants us to be changed by love deep within the heart. And that's what Jesus is getting to with this man. The first thing I'm going to say is that the heart is an idol factory. By nature, we come up with loads of God substitutes in our heart. So the young man comes to him. He's rich. He's moral. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a very outwardly good man. Like there's no sense of awkwardness when he tells Jesus the sort of things that he does. There's no one going, I can't believe he actually said that to Jesus. This is a very moral man. He's also rich in a culture that felt that if you had money, it was a sign of God's blessing. But there's something within him that knows that he's missing something. And so he comes to Jesus and he falls at Jesus' feet because he desires eternal life. What must I do to have eternal life? Lots of people have pointed out that the emphasis is on his doing rather than his receiving. But he wants eternal life. I think he's very contemporary. He's very like a lot of people in our society who will say, you know, do you think you're right with God? And they'll say, yes, because I'm a good person. But, but is there security underneath that? Do they really believe that? And here's a guy who's been trying to convince himself that he's eternal life, but he knows in his heart of hearts that there's something missing, and he's seen that Jesus is the person who can direct him. And he says to Jesus, good teacher. And then Jesus says, no one's good but God alone. And I think that Mark, who's been trying to show us the whole way through that Jesus is God the Son, is picking up on the irony here. He notices that Jesus is good teacher, that he alone is good, and God alone is good according to Jesus' words. There's a claim, I think, here subtly that Jesus says, I am God. I'm God the Son. And the arrogance of this young man is this, that Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. And what does he say? Me too. I'm good. God's good, and I'm good. Can you see the arrogance? And then Jesus, of course, is pointing to the reality. No, 
No one is good but God alone. No one is good. That's, that's the whole purpose right throughout the Bible of God's diagnosis of what we're like. No one is good. All of us have a problem. And then Jesus says, well, what have you been trying to do? And he says, well, I've been keeping the commands. Notice that he's keeping the second part of the Ten Commandments, the, the not God ones in some ways, like everything's a God command. But, you know, he hasn't got to, for example, love the Lord your God, you know, with all your heart and have no other gods but me, the very first command. He's ignored that. And Jesus points his finger into this guy's life to show him that all is not well in his heart. This is not a universal command, by the way. He's not saying to each one of us that we need to give everything we have away. When he talks to Zacchaeus, I think he says, give a third away. In the book of Acts, the giving was always voluntary. But he knows that this guy has a problem in his heart that revolves, one, around his sense of goodness, and two, around his sense of entitlement, or the security and the significance he gets for money. And so what happens? Jesus points into his heart. Second thing we've got to say is that we need God to change our hearts. I was thinking about this. What should the young man have done when Jesus said, go give your, your possessions away? Well, obviously he should have given his possessions away, but something else. I think that the young man should have looked at Jesus and realized he was helpless. I think he should have fallen back down again against Jesus' feet and said, Lord, help me. There's a problem in my heart. I can't change. You've just put the finger on where my heart is rotten. You've just put the finger on the fact that I actually don't want you more than I want other stuff. And I can't change. I think that that's what the young man should have done. He should have said, oh Lord, I'm morally bankrupt. I cannot change. You've highlighted my sin. There's something wrong in my heart. The reason I say that is because when it comes to becoming someone who inherits eternal life, what does Jesus say? What is impossible for man is possible for God. In other words, the only way you're going to get put right with God, the only way your heart is going to change is if God does a work in you that you can't do for yourself. This guy couldn't fix his problem. Jesus diagnosed his problem, and Jesus was the only one who could fix the problem. And so becoming someone who follows Jesus is a matter of giving up on yourself and saying, I can't do it. I can't change. Do you ever feel like that? I feel like that all the time. You know, you're obsessing over something or there's, there's a sin that seems to grip you all the time. And there's a sense in which you've got to give up on yourself. And you've got to have faith in God that he can do within you what you can't do for yourself. And you've got to stop believing the lie that God can't change you. That's a huge one. Because some of us have got to a stage in our lives where certain things seem to have a grip over us 
and we've believed a lie that God didn't change us. And that's not true. The disciples are astonished, by the way, because after all, they're looking at this guy who's very morally virtuous. They're looking at him and going, you know, and in a society where wealth was considered a sign of God's blessing. This guy has it all. And yet he's going to walk away empty. He doesn't have eternal life. And it raises a question. Who then can have eternal life? He, he, one of the things about the New Testament is that riches in themselves are not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a blessing, but there are dangers with whatever we have. There's dangers that whatever we have becomes so important to us that it blocks our view of God. That we begin to gradually look to security, our home, our family, whatever. Uh, you know, we begin to look to them for our sense of significance and security rather than God first. But then he says this parable about a camel going through the eye of the needle. There was a stage where commentators made a big deal about this and they tried to explain it. There was apparently a gate called the needle gate and, you know, all that. What the simple point of this is, it's impossible. It's impossible. You can't get, a camel was the biggest creature in Palestine at the time. Uh, We don't have many big creatures, do we? What would be the biggest creature we would have? Big cow? Yeah, you know, big cow getting through the eye of a needle. It's, it's, it is impossible. That's the whole point. And he's saying it's impossible for rich man or for that sake any person to get into the kingdom of God. So how does it happen? What is impossible for humankind is possible for God. You can't work your way into God's kingdom. You can't change your heart. You can't earn God's forgiveness. Only God can do it. Now I'm going to show you how you can know that that's happened to you. But can I just start by saying If you're someone who's come to see the value of Jesus, if you're someone who's given up trying to prove yourself, if you're someone who knows that this Jesus who looks at you and loves you and welcomes you and has caused you to come to your senses and bring you home, you should be very thankful to God. Because what he's done for you is something you couldn't do for yourself. And if you're someone this morning, and we'll see that this is open to all of us, who is a Christian, you should be very humble. You should be both humble and confident. You should be humble. Why? Because this was not something you did for yourself. You couldn't do it. Only God could do it within you. So that brings us to the final question I have this morning, which is Jesus offers us more than idols And even as I was going over this, I slightly changed. You see, Bruce, this is how much I changed. But actually, I thought, actually, what I want to to pick up in this last verse, or these last verses, is how do I know? 
How do I know God's changed my heart? Because I still struggle with idols every day. How do I know? Well, Peter speaks for the disciples. And, and he's their spokesman. And I think he's a bit bitter here. But we have left everything for you. What's in it for us? And he had. They had followed. And they had left everything. What's in it for us? And Jesus answers and he says this. If you left your family or whatever to come after me, there's a greater family for you. There's new brothers and sisters. And what's that? That's the church. That's God's people, not just in this church, but in any church where there are people who love Jesus, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is supposed to be a blessing for us. I don't know, have you ever gone on holiday and you've just been itching to meet someone who knows Jesus? Because there's a bond that we have. I was in the pharmacy getting my blood pressure tablets because I have a blood pressure problem. There was a lovely Brazilian girl there. She was having all sorts of trouble. And she said to me, she says, I'm just praying to get through the next hour. And I wish I had said, you'll get through because God is good. Because I think that would have opened, I, I suspect she was a Christian. But don't we have that connection? This week was a difficult week for me. But you know who I thought about lots of times? is you guys. I look forward to being back with you guys. Because we're family. We're family. And one of the things that brings us here each Sunday is because we're family. And Psalm 16 says the people in the land, he's talking about God's people, are my delight. And when God gives you that delight for God's people, it's an evidence that God has worked within you. And so you ask him to continue to soften your heart towards each other that we would be forgiving and accepting and loving. One of the things I was thinking even about us church is the sense of mission. We want to be a sort of people where the truth is spoken and grace is lived so that you would be confident to invite your friends here because they could see God's love. Because Jesus prayed and he said, if the world sees love amongst you, it will know that God sent me. And that's like a challenge for us, isn't it? To people who draw close to each other in love. And you know what? That's an evidence. That's a, a supernatural thing that says that God has changed your heart. And that's wonderful. Take joy in that. Take joy in the fact that you've given up on your own goodness. You, you know, this is, and I go back to Lisa's title, The Deadly Danger of Being Good. How do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that God has done this work in me? Because the gospel where Jesus says, no one is good but God alone, actually thrills my heart. That it's good that I'm bankrupt. It's, I'm happy to admit that I can't earn my way into God's kingdom. That, that, that I admit, because self-righteous people, and we're all by nature self-righteous, will justify themselves. I remember in the last church I was in, a friend gave out to me. She says, my friend came to church, and you said we're all sinners. And she's offended. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? 
Like, it's true. I, I, you know, I, I can't, you know, do you want me to go and apologize to her? But for the Christian, when God does the work, that's okay. Because you've given up trying to do to inherit eternal life. And so we know by our love for God's people, even though it's imperfect and it's a struggle, we know because the gospel is good news to us, because we're happy to admit that we deserve hell, but we've been given heaven. And if your heart, like mine, feels sometimes quite cold, I, I remind myself of a phrase that Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, said, the, no, the desire to love God is love for God. The desire to love God is love for God. You know, you know, do I fall short in my desire to love God? Absolutely. Do I want to love him more? Absolutely. Is that an evidence of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. I was going to do a sermon series. Uh, this is just to finish. This is my conclusion. I was going to do a sermon series at one stage on Jonah. I did it before, but I was going over it uh, thinking I'd re-preach it. Um, and at the end of chapter 2, Jonah is in the belly of the fish. And he cries out to God. And he's quite self-righteous at this stage. He doesn't see his problem in his heart. But he says at the end of his time in the belly of the fish, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that should be theirs. God opposes the plowed and gives grace to the humble. What's the way forward in the Christian life? The way to grow is to ask God to show us what we put as our security, what do we look for for our significance, how we fall back in the trap of being obsessed with what others think of us, how we get caught in our ambitions, and all of those things, while you know the Christian struggles with them, nevertheless, damage our reception of God's grace to us. Does that make sense? They hold us back. And the Christian is someone who's converted at a moment of time, but in some days is going to God every day for a new conversion. Not that they've lost their faith, but that we keep going to God, and we keep confessing, and we keep asking him to remove the idols, and we keep saying, I can't change, change me. And we keep saying, I want to see more of that evidence that I will love your people and desire to be with them. That we keep seeing the gospel as good news. In fact, as I've said, and we're coming to the end of this little sermon series on Mark, and we're going to take a break from Mark for a while over Christmas, and then I'll do another sermon series after Christmas, that we keep beholding, we keep looking, we keep asking the Holy Spirit to show us the beauty of Jesus so that we would see that he is more satisfying than anything else. That's what we need. And it doesn't come naturally. And so we look at Jesus and we ask him to change us. One last thought. I, found, I heard this. I, I try not to listen to other sermons too much because I tend to just borrow from them. But... One preacher said, I think it was Tim Keller, he said, 
You know, the funny thing is, the devil will always tell you that coming to Jesus is about losing stuff. But coming to Jesus is about getting stuff. I don't mean possessions. This is not the prosperity gospel. But giving up what is of little value and enjoying what's of great value. And he gave this illustration. Could you imagine the joy that that man would have had if he had given away his possessions and followed Jesus? Could you imagine the joy? Because who was he giving it to? He was giving it to the poor. You, you know, God loves a, a joyful giver. He would have had such joy. He would have seen how his money was better spent. I'm not saying that this is God's call for every one of us, but remember, he would have been giving up on this is my status, this is my security, to you are my status, and you are my security. And when Jesus says, come follow me, he's promising to look after everything for us. We will not be left without. And in all that, we'll have eternal life. Forgiveness of sin, purpose, understanding that you're loved, even when it's difficult to follow him. Let's pray. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he looks at each one of us in love this morning. Some of you are tempted to stay away from Jesus because you're aware of your badness. But that never stops his grace towards you. And some of you are staying away from Jesus because of your goodness. And that is deadly. We think that we are good people. And maybe we can compare ourselves to others, but before the holy God, we all fall short. There is none good but God alone. And we ask him to allow us know our bankruptcy. But to come to him for heavenly riches, to realize on the cross that we're forgiven. We look to our stuff for security, but he says, you can trust me. And I pray for each one of us that you would show us this week the ways in which we've slipped back into old idolatries and that we would satisfy ourselves in your love first put everything in its right order. Amen.